Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week we're talking about Richard Wagner's Tristan und Isolde, which debuted in Munich in 1865. Music and libretto by Mr. Wagner himself. As always. As always. <laughs> this was the game changer, wasn't it? This was the one that really kind of set Western music on its ear, pretty much. This is the one that took chromaticism farther than it had ever been taken, way farther than it had ever been taken before. And uh, essentially Wagner, by that time he'd, he'd, he'd done the Flying Dutchman and Tannhäuser and Lohengrin, and he'd done most of the ring cycle. He'd done all of Rheingold and Valkyra, and he had composed acts one and two of Siegfried. And at that point he decided, I'm just going to leave Siegfried in the forest for now. <laughs> <laughs> And turned my attention elsewhere, and uh, elsewhere became Trisandro di Zolda and uh, Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg. And he developed new theories about music making, which he then put into play to finish the ring cycle. But Tristano di Zolda is really the, the benchmark that, that most scholars and historians and musicologists point to as, hey, yeah, this is where everything completely changed. Talk about his use of these musical motifs, these light motifs. He had, to some extent, begun that practice even as far back as, as Lohengrin. He started, yeah, he did, and, and even further back than that. But really when he started the ring cycle with Das Rheingold is when he began to use them in a way that no one had ever done before and, and in, a, in a way kind of not since, not, not to his extent. He basically uses these musical themes as a language by which the orchestra becomes an omniscient narrator. Mm. And uh, all the while that the characters are on stage you know, singing, uh, the orchestra is feeding you, the listener, with information that the characters don't know and doing it in very complex, very subtle ways oftentimes. Because he weaves those motifs together so intricately. Yeah, combines them oftentimes yeah. uh, to set scenes and to to foreshadow events, to comment ironically on what's going on on stage. He used them, again, in a way that no one had ever, ever, you know, really employed them before. Tristan und Isolde is based upon the, the medieval legend. Tristan is the nephew of King Mark of Cornwall. Right. Tristan's parents were, were killed when he was a boy, and he has been raised by... King Mark, as his heir apparent, really. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of Wagner's opera, we are on a ship. Tristan is bringing Isolde from Ireland. She was a daughter of the Irish king. He's bringing her to Cornwall to marry King Mark. Yes, and there's some backstory that we, we begin oh, boy, to... Oh, boy, he says some backstory. <laughs> Just Whoa. a little bit. A, a smidgen. A little bit. We learn about this uh, in the course of Act One because Isolde is so mad. <laughs> she is so furious that she finds herself in this position because she was actually engaged to marry a young warrior named Morold. And Morold had come from Ireland to Cornwall to exact tribute, and he was killed by Tristan. Because Cornwall was having, in essence, to pay Ireland a sort of a bribe. You know, if you, if, if you pay us this money, 
we won't come and attack you. Yeah, kind of like the mafia. (laughs) (laughs) And so Morrill turns up and Tristan says, okay, enough's enough and attacks, kills Morrill. Right. But is himself wounded. And who should find the wounded Tristan but Morrill's intended bride-to-be Isolde? who looks in Tristan's eyes and sees something there that stays her hand and keeps her from running him through with a sword. Because she tells Brangana, her maid, in Act One, that she knew who this guy was. Yeah. Because she found a splinter of a sword in Morold's body, and she matched that splinter to Tristan's sword. Mm. So he's sort of laid out unconscious. She is taking care of him because she is from a line of women who are, what's the word? Practiced in the art of potions and... The magical arts. Uh Tristan, wounded, travels by boat. (laughs) This sort of floats him across the, uh, the sea to Ireland. And Isolde finds him and takes him in in secret and cares for him, etc. And nurses him back to health. Right. And in the course of that nursing him back to health, she falls in love with him. Yeah. And he with her. Yeah. But they do nothing about it. Tristan had killed her intended husband. She's the, the daughter of the enemy king. Doesn't look good. True. Tristan, healed, goes back to Cornwall and then gets tasked by King Mark to go and get Isolde, bring her back so that King Mark can marry her. Yeah. And it should, we should note at this point that we find out most of this backstory from Isolde herself. In she, has, uh-huh, she has uh, what is commonly referred to as Isolde's Act One narrative and curse where she tells the story of, of how she nursed him back to health and how she found out who she was and she couldn't kill him and then was basically, you know, betrayed by him. And she just... Betrayed in, in the sense that he's going, he's he's going, going to, to allow her, her to marry to his King uncle. Mark. Yeah, right. yeah. She's furious. And the, more, and the longer she goes on with this narrative, the angrier she gets. And it just mounts and it mounts and it mounts until she ends in this blistering curse <laughs> you know had he been there I can't imagine he would have survived it you know <laughs> well of course he is on the ship yeah but when she demands that he come and see her uh, under the guise that she's going to forgive him quote unquote what she doesn't understand is that he loves her as much as she loves him mm-hmm. so they're sort of at odds with each other right for no real reason. <laughs> but they both have a, a sense of duty. Mm-hmm. And particularly Tristan so. to King Mark. Yeah. Because he's not only is he his him. uncle, he raised him, but he's also his liege. His king. Exactly. So Tristan initially, you know, sort of brushes off her her uh, her summons, but but ultimately he he does come to see her. This is where the potion comes in. Right, because 
Isolde's plan is to, uh, you know, raise a glass with him. But she has... Under the guise of forgiving him. Mm-hmm, under the guise of forgiving him. But what she's planning to do is to put a death potion in, in both, both glasses. Both of them. She's going to do away with both of them. So she tasks Brongaina with preparing the potion. Brongaina is completely distraught. I mean, she is almost out of her mind, you know, over what's about to happen. And instead of preparing the death draught, she pulls out the love potion. Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> This isn't going to end well. <laughs> but what is so interesting is that this is sort of the summation of the whole opera in many ways, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's that interplay uh, between love and death and how, as we see, developed particularly in Act 2 yeah. and Act 3, that the impetus to love is also an impetus toward death. And... Here's the, here's what's I, I find really interesting. I uh, love about this score. The the first thing in the whole opera you hear in the prelude is the the Tristan chord, and it, it's dissonant and it's, and it's slightly disturbing, and it doesn't resolve, and it never resolves in the course of the entire opera until the very end when they're both well. I'm giving the ending away, spoiler. but they're both <laughs> spoiler alert. They're both dead, <laughs> but. When the two of them drink what she thinks is the death draught, and he kind of, most stagings indicate that he kind of knows. He sees what's going on and he's, all right, fine. You know, I'm, (laughs) because he loves her too. So they both drink the love potion. And then, you know, in the orchestra, the, the love motif, this Tristan chord just erupts, you know, as they both look at each other and... Because it's all up, over. <laughs> up, up, up until that point, they had both sort of kept a lid on their passion for each other. And in fact, had expressed their emotions for one another with antipathy. You know, so there's sort of this fine line between love and hate. Yeah. Uh, although it's really rooted in love, they both express it in, in, in terms of uh, having an antipathy toward one another. But... The, the love potion, if you, if you choose to believe that, the, that this potion actually does work and it's not just an empty metaphor, that the, the two of them were destined to come together all along, love potion or not. Because, in fact, what Wagner's premise is that that passion had been conceived prior to the love potion. Absolutely. So they drink it. Yeah. And... Chaos ensues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, land is sighted, and you hear all these fanfares and excitement going on as they're about to land in Cornwall, and yet Tristan and Isolde can see nothing but one another. They're just completely lost in one another at that point. End of Act One. End of Act One. Act Two. Isolde is married to King Mark, and she's carrying on an affair with Tristan. A torrid one at that. <laughs> yes. But they're being discreet. Right. As King Mark prepares to go out on a hunt with his retinue, uh, he does so, and Isolde gives a sign. She, she lights a torch and places it you know, in a certain place 
that signals to Tristan that it's safe to come and join her and have a tryst with Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. Sorry. Yes. I had to. <laughs> Brangana, though, is not convinced that the coast is that clear. Mm-mm. No, she's she's going to keep watch. So she is stationed at a point where she can keep a lookout while uh, Tristan and Isolde begin what is arguably the greatest love duet ever written. <laughs> it goes on for, oh gosh, a good, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. And it is, uh, you know, it's it's uh, got all of this, this poetic metaphor in it as uh, talking about night and death and, and, and mixing all these metaphors together and, and how talking about how they're only safe to be together at night or in, or that is to say in death at the same time, you've got this music and on the surface, basically what you have is a musical, how do I put it? (laughs) Basically a musical depiction of sexual Congress. It really is. I mean, from big. Is that like the U.S. Congress? <laughs> Arguably, yes. <laughs> but it is. The, I mean, there is, there is an intensity. There is a passion. There's an s- extreme passion when they first come together, and it's just really, the orchestra's just churning away, and they're just singing away. And, you know, then it calms down a little bit. It becomes very sort of languorous and tender. And then uh, moves into a, it becomes increasingly profound and, uh, and they, they, the vocal line and the, and the musical line mounts and mounts and mounts as they're getting toward a climactic moment and they're interrupted. <laughs> but what is interesting though is the way that that duality, night and day, love and death, they are blurred. The distinctions mm-hmm. are blurred because they're celebrating the night. Right. They're celebrating death because that, for them, is the apotheosis, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yes. They can be united forever, united completely in death, only in death. Right, which, spoiler alert, is exactly what will happen. <laughs> And as you said, they are interrupted by Malote. Yeah, and it's and it's oh, it's it's again so frustrating. This music is just frustrating. In fact, when Tristan first premiered, there were all these reports of how you know don't let your women listen to this music; it will drive them mad. Seriously, <laughs> that's what they thought um, because it's you know four to four and a half hours of. Sexual frustration, basically, right up until the very final moments of the score, when finally she's allowed to sing the Liebestod and complete, you know, these musical progressions uh, and drop the other shoe, as it were. You it know. all comes together. It does. Kovenal, who is Tristan's faithful sidekick, right, runs in to warn them that Melot is on his way. On his way. And they are caught. King Mark, of course, is crestfallen. Completely destroyed to find them together, to find himself betrayed by this, this man whom he raised as his son. Malote rushes forward and runs Tristan through with his sword, wounds him. Yes. He's, 
grievously wounded. End of Act Two. Yes. Act Three. Covenal has taken Tristan across the water to his own castle, Cariol. But he's sick. He's dying. Yes. But he has some hope that Isolde might come and once again cure him. Right. And he hallucinates and thinks that he sees her and hears her, then doesn't, until finally he hears what he thinks is Isolde, and in fact it is her. She does, she has come to him. So she has left her life with King Mark behind to be with Tristan. Right. Is she able to save him? Sadly, no. He dies in her arms. And she then sings one of the most famous passages in all of, not just in Wagner, but in all of opera, and it's the Liebestod. This begins with the words, Mild und leise. And it mirrors that very passionate, profound portion of the love duet. It's, 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 it is the love duet, but it's only her now. Because Liebestod actually means love, love death. death. Exactly. Which, for, for these two, are essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And she takes it, and, and it is, it is, this time is not interrupted, takes it to its climactic phrase, and then it just kind of dies down. And as, as the music settles down, she sinks to the ground, and she basically leaves life behind to join him in death. Not before, though, King Mark shows up. Mm-hmm. And Tristan has already died. Yes. He comes to forgive them, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, uh, you know, I think he's, he's finally recognized that there was an unstoppable force between these two. And uh, it, it was not, you know, not necessarily a betrayal of him, but just the, the giving in to uh, fate. Uh, fate. Yeah. And also, to sort of help complete the picture, Kervenal attacks and kills Malot. Yes. <laughs> so there is some sort of sense of Yay. justification. <laughs> Yay. So, so I love your description of this piece as sort of one long expression of, of, of sexual longing. Yeah. I mean, the music is is gorgeous. That, that Liebestod at the end is just achingly beautiful. Oh, my gosh. And, my gosh, these are two of the, the, the pinnacles of the dramatic tenor and soprano repertoire. Isolde and Brynhilde are, you know, two of the most difficult roles to sing for a dramatic soprano. The role of Tristan, if uncut, is almost unsingable. It's so taxing. And he's got this huge, long scene to open Act 3 where he's just there on stage. And, you know, Corvinal might be there, but he's not singing. And he's got to, after, after getting through all of Act 1, getting through that love duet in Act 2, now he's got this big, long stretch to sing all by himself. And God help him. You know, it's, it is Herculean in, in, in scale. Uh, and anybody who can get, not just get through it, but can master it, can write his own ticket in opera. You know, <laughs> in a way, it's, it's the Mount Everest of, uh, of operas for both the, the tenor and the soprano. Richard Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.